This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for a crack strategy panel. And as you heard in Bob's news, Ottawa is a buzz over the return of Mark Carney after a stint as the governor of the Bank of England. The former Bank of Canada chief is the only person to ever serve as the head of two central banks. And he's been tapped to advise the prime minister on the post-COVID recovery And he is known to have had political ambitions. So does this add fuel to the rumors of Finance Minister Bill Morneau's ouster? And just last week in this slot, everyone seemed to think the wee scandal was done. But a couple of new polls that have come out since then show most Canadians don't think so. And a majority, including many Liberals, believe there are further shoes to drop. The opposition, of course, is certainly trying to keep it alive. And is there anything to the buzz around the chief of staff, Katie Telford? Her husband is a VP of the private mortgage company that got the contract to administer the commercial rent subsidy. Now, she recused herself from those decisions, but the opposition is still crying foul. So, numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And let's bring in John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, uh, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay, let's start with John because we just heard from Andrew Shear. So, uh, is everybody making too much of uh, Morno coming home? Uh, sorry, of uh, of Mark Carney coming home. You mean Morno maybe going home? <laughs> maybe, and Morno going home? Yes. Um, well, you know what, Libby? I think it's it's uh, it's certainly topical. Uh, you know, anything with respect to potential cabinet changes or shifts, uh, be it provincial or federal, always get uh, uh, news attention. And it's actually newsworthy, for sure, given the fact that we're talking about uh, the finance portfolio, which is one of the more critical, most critical portfolios um, uh, in any government. So so I'm not surprised that it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, but it also speaks to a lot of things, I think, that, that this government is facing by way of challenges. And that is you know, we've talked extensively about the Wee scandal and, and some of the challenges that the government has been facing and, and the opposition trying to keep it alive as a as an issue. Um, and one of the key players in that scandal has always been Bill Morneau uh, because of the $41,000 you know trip that he took that he ended up expensing or paying back uh, the day before he was or the day up. He was supposed to be on committee. The fact that he didn't recuse himself from discussions at cabinet, the fact that his daughter... Uh, or family members have worked or worked at we so all of that kind of a lot of this, the we scandal swirled around Bill Marnot. So the talk of him being being taken out as a result of that uh, has always been rampant. But now, given the fact that you've got somebody in, in the character of Mark Mark Carney, who was obviously high profile, 
uh, and and somebody who's always talked about a political career, him being now an advisor to this government just makes the the, the talk a bit more rampant uh, and 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 necessary. And quite frankly, we also saw that one of the Liberal MPs uh, is stepping down in New York Center, which of course just exasperates this issue even more or gives it more oxygen because. If there's ever a writing that someone needs to run in, in a by-election, to get into Parliament, boy, that's a great one for Mark Carney to consider. Yeah, it it, it was uh, a conservative quite recently, but uh, other than, uh, I guess, a few outings as a, as a conservative writing, it was safe liberal writing, right? Yes. Well, it was Mark Adler who had it uh, as a conservative and, and lost out narrowly to... Uh, uh, to Michael Levitt, who won it in the, in the last, uh, in, the, in the previous election, I guess the first election where the Liberals won. Um, so, but it is traditionally a liberal writing and con- traditionally considered a safe liberal writing. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Charles, uh, what do you make of all of this? And uh, it should be pointed out, uh, Mark Carney is a potential rival to Justin Trudeau. Yeah, there's no doubt Mark Carney is a, is an astoundingly accomplished individual um, and uh, former senior assistant deputy minister at the Federal Department of Finance, governor of the Bank of Canada, governor of the Bank of England. But something tells me that the, the timing is just is just not quite right. Um, you know, the the we charity issue has obviously been a gift to the opposition parties because it gives them something to talk about other than. COVID, which has obviously been strong ground for the federal government. Um, my own sense is that Minister Morneau will remain at finance. Um, there have been certainly a lot of rumors about um, discord between the Prime Minister's office and, uh, and the office of the Minister of Finance, but there's traditionally a tension between central agencies and the Finance Department in Ottawa. Finance Department's traditionally that department that has to say no to a lot of people. But one of the defining characteristics of any successful government is the ability of the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance to, to function effectively. And, you know, Paul Martin and Jean Crenshaw, and it was no great secret that they didn't like each other very much. Uh, that would they, be a mild way of putting it. They yeah. also performed very, very effectively together. And Prime Minister Kretschmann, to his credit, always backed Paul Martin right up to the very end when um, Mr. Martin left the cabinet. Now, obviously, COVID has put the finances of this country in a whole different light. The Prime Minister's office has been more directly involved in decision-making that would traditionally be the purview of the Department of Finance. That has inevitably created some degree of tension, some degree of you know personal noses rubbed the wrong way, what have you. But is it enough to replace the Minister of Finance? Probably not. Is, Minister, is, is Mark Carney interested in being Minister of Finance right now? Probably not. Anyway, we can talk about York Centre a little bit, but um, I'm more interested to see that Peter McKay, who I think is going to win the federal conservative leadership, if he's going to have the nerve to run in York Centre. Uh, Karen? Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when we read in the newspapers, you know, sources talk about um, Mark Carney and that he would replace Morneau. I think that this is really the Liberals actually throwing out a trial balloon to see what popular opinion might uh, reveal and whether or not it does make sense for Mr. Carney to even consider um, that role, you know, but, and there's always, um, but there's always a worry that this is, you know, and we've talked about this before that, you know, the party's looking for a new savior and, uh, the savior is Mark Carney. There's no question. He's an accomplished 
a person with a great resume and, a, and, a, and an incredible track record of accomplishment. But um, as John knows and as Charles knows, like being a, ta- a talented, competent individual doesn't necessarily make you a good politician. And so there's always that worry that, um, you know, he wants that there is a sense that he wants to do this job or the liberals want him to do this job. And that, you know, here's a prime opportunity for him to run in New York central, uh, York center rather. And, um, and yet it's just not the savior that everyone hopes it's going to be. Uh, so, you know, I think that for sure, this is the liberals tossing out a trial balloon just to test the waters to see, to see what people think about this idea. Well, he uh, I, I, he doesn't have a full-time job anyway at the moment, though uh, he took a lot of heat as ba- uh, governor of the Bank of England over Brexit. Uh, and I, he, I guess he kept warning that it was going to cost uh, the UK a lot of money leaving the EU, and uh, he took a lot of flack for that. Yeah, he did. And, and you know what, it's not unusual for... For someone, uh, uh, you know, in that kind of position, quite frankly, Libby, to get that kind of that kind of criticism, and especially during a time uh, as the Brexit debate was going on and the referendum was going on, when just emotions were charged and and anything and anyone who was opposed to one view or the other was going to get criticism from the opposing view. So, um, but I think by and large, uh, you know, I think I think he conducted himself well. The fact that he. Uh, he was extended. His time was extended to uh, to to be there to the until until Brexit actually took form. Was was a testament to the fact that he had the confidence of of Parliament and the majority of of people there. So I thought, you know, there's no question that I think he did he did he performed his duties there well. And of course, as governor of Canada, he did as well. Um, so he's a formidable a formidable candidate, a formidable individual in his own right. But I, I actually Karen brings up a very good point with respect to it. Doesn't necessarily mean. But to have that kind of a resume, uh, that you're going to become, you know, sort of a, 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 a stellar or successful politician in the world of hard knocks, which is politics. You know, I ran against Michael Ignatieff, who at the time oh, was going to yes. be the savior, uh, of, uh, of the liberals back in the day. Uh, and I remember him, uh, you know, winning obviously locally, but, but and even winning the leadership, but just being a, a terrible politician and not to take away anything from, from Michael Gnadia, from his intelligence and his, his academia world, but but it doesn't necessarily translate into the hard rock, the hard knocks of politics. So uh, that's something else that I would imagine that he and his family, his wife and others, would would have to consider uh, if he decides to do this. But there's no question that he would. He's always had a, a political eye to 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 get involved in politics, uh, and this could very well be the time to do it. And I think it's it's perfect time because I think that Justin Trudeau's days as as liberal leader. Uh, quite frankly, are, are numbered. I think he'll stay for sure until the next election. But depending on what happens, uh, there could be a leadership uh, vote, and uh, and Mark Carney would probably be the top uh, uh, top of the ticket next to uh, Chrystia Freeland. Um, yeah, I would uh, definitely think so. Now, it's interesting, Charles, you mentioned uh, York Centre. You mentioned will Peter McKay have the nerve to run there? Uh, so uh, that would also obviously be the obvious spot for Carney to run. Uh, Michael Levitt uh, announced that he was leaving. He's taken a job as the CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. I, I, th- they do some very good work. But I have to say, I have a problem with somebody uh, running and taking this job and then deciding partway through that they have a better job. I mean, he said it's because of my family, but, you know, frankly, that's that's a, a thing that nobody ever believes. Am I being harsh here? 
No, I don't think you're being harsh. Um, like Michael Levitt was disproportionately important as members of Parliament go for a couple of reasons. First, he was chair of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, which is which is traditionally in, in the parliamentary committee system a very senior position. It's not quite ministerial, but it's it's close, right? You're taken seriously by visiting dignitaries, and he was very, very knowledgeable on global affairs and was a constant source of important information and advice to the government. The second thing is that Michael is, he, he's taking this job because he, he, I mean, obviously the family implications are important, but this is, this, this job is, a, is also very important for the Jewish community in Canada. And as the MP for York Centre, he was a, a particularly strong spokesperson person for the Jewish community in Canada. And that is an issue that the Liberals are certainly aware of, especially with regards to York Centre, because, um, you know, he, he really was somebody that, that, that spoke to very legitimate concerns within the community, such as anti-Semitism, such as uh, violence and, um, you know, desecration of synagogues, of Jewish cemeteries. I mean, these are issues that not only never go away, but they have the, they have the capacity to come back in a real hurry. So if, so in the... And get worse. If, it's, uh, it's, it's gotten worse. And exactly uh, there's right. also an issue of liberal policy. But I mean, I don't want to get into that right now. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I, I mean, do you, so for all of those things, uh, uh why did he? Why did he leave that job then, Charles? It, it really like I, I. I have to. I have to confess that I know Michael quite well and uh, had lunch with him just before uh, COVID struck us all. And um, he, you know, the, the family concerns are real, and that happens from time to time with with individuals. And you know, he was spending just he was having to spend all of his time in Ottawa, and he has a young family. And I think this role was just too good to pass up, and it has the, the singular benefit of allowing him to come home and have dinner with his family every night, which a lot of us over the period of, of COVID have sort of rediscovered as one of the singular single silver linings of, of this entire experience, that we're spending way more time with our families and, frankly, rediscovering our families. And, and you know, if, if there is an upside to, this, to, to what we've all been through, it's probably that. Karen? Do you yeah, buy that? I, you know, I, so, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, John Baird, actually, who's one of my favorite former politicians. I had the chance to run into him after he retired from politics. And he said, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer by any stretch, but I can read the writing on the wall. And he left his role as a relatively prominent conservative in the government because he could read the writing on the wall that the government was in trouble. And he said, I don't want to be in the opposition. I've been there. I don't want to go back there. So he left politics at a very opportune time for him. And so not to take away anything that Charles just said about Michael wanting to spend more time with his family, because I'm sure that that was a, a strong consideration, but also with uh, the, the WE scandal that, as, you know, as, as you say, is, is still on the top of minds of Canadians, plus the fact that COVID has had a real impact on everybody in this country, either uh, for from an economic perspective, from a public health perspective, that the Liberals are into some, you know, they're heading into some some trying times, and they are in a minority situation, and the Conservatives are about to get a new leader. And so there's a good chance that Michael looked at the writing on the wall and said, I have an opportunity here that's uh, true to my core and my beliefs and will, again, help me be with my family, and he took it. 
And so now what that does is it does create an interesting, potentially, uh, by-election uh, because my expectation is that if, if McKay does win the leadership, that he does need a seat and he would run there. It's not his home base, of course, but there's an opportunity for him. And then if Mark Carney does decide to dip his toe into the political waters, that could be one of the more exciting races that we've seen in probably I don't know, John. How many years? Oh, good. That would that would that would give us a, a lot to talk about. Okay, that so would. yeah, you might. I mean, that would that would um, your explanation would assume a great deal of foresight on his part <laughs> because uh, it's a long yeah. way to the next election, and uh, oh wow, who knows what could be till then? I, it I do have to say that that much as I think is it's important to have a really strong person at that particular organization, uh, it did kind of rub me the wrong way. You make a promise to the people, and then suddenly it's millions of dollars for a by election. Yeah, and maybe can I just say to, just yeah. to that? I I would say, and I agree that that's the frustrating part when when someone gets gets you know runs for public office consciously and decides to 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 run and knows the sacrifices of of it, runs wins, and then partway through decides that ah I'm not really sure this was was what I wanted and moved on to something else. Uh, so normally it would it would be a, it would bother me. I'm less fussed about this only because it is a minority government. Uh, and in minority governments, you just don't know when the trigger is going to be pulled, so to speak, for, to, to, for an election to be called. So I would imagine that given the opportunity, and obviously it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity for, for Michael Levin with an amazing organization, um, I, I could see that he's thinking, you know, I might as well take this now because we might be an election in two or three months. It might be an election certainly within a year. Um, it's not that, you know, if it, I would have been more and more upset if, if there was a majority government and he's a year into it and decides to leave. But I do think that the, the uncertainty of the minority government and, as Karen was mentioned, the uncertainty of, of whether or not this wee scandal is going gonna, is gonna to weigh heavily on, on this government, um, it will probably weigh heavily on him to make the decision he did at the time that he did. Well, one thing I will say about this amazing organization, and I'm very familiar with them, is that their previous CEO uh, made a very abrupt departure, and that has not been fully explained, though it is the subject of rumors. So um, I'm just putting that out there. Oh, no, it's true. Uh, the brine hand into the fire? Pardon? Yeah, um, yeah, you know, and and uh, you know, I I think also an organization that that survives on donations maybe has a little, I mean, uh, has a, a little more responsibility to be a little transparent about stuff like that. But there you go, that's me. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should touch on the next thing, and that is uh, Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. Uh, and her husband's company, a mortgage company, got the contract to administer the rent subsidy. And it turns out she recused herself. She, it looks like she did everything right. But in discussing this whole little thing, you know, what nobody has brought up is that the design of this particular program has been very widely panned. And I can't even count the number of emails and comments that I get from people who are small business people who hardly are the kind of people who expect a handout and small business uh, lobby groups, I mean, who are saying, look at this, this program is very flawed because it it gives all the cards to the landlords. And uh, so, you know, I'm wondering if there's any of that concern in all of that about whether she recused herself or not. John? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, yet another issue I think that the government's facing that speaks to um, the the issue of entitlement, is some some issue of of whether or not the lobbying rules were 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 uh, adhered to, and and it does kind of spill over uh, into the into the from the Wee scandal, you know, and it's, it's, it doesn't sort of attach to the Wee scandal, but it's, it kind of has the same flavor with respect to well, wait a second, you know, you knew somebody there. Uh, you know, and, and something might have happened. Now, I, I, I don't, we don't know enough about this issue, obviously. And I, and I must say, Libby, I know Rob Silver, uh, well. Uh, he and I have done panels together in the past. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously a very smart, very capable, uh, you know, gentleman who, um, who obviously got a, got a good job with MCAP. Um, and, and I'm reading, you know, as we all are from at the surface that, that Katie Telford, uh, her, his wife, uh, chief of staff to the prime minister has uh, recused herself and made a point of of doing so uh, in a way that that was documented, you know, at, when he got his job in January. So it, we're still we're still yet to see what's going to come out of it. But it doesn't help the government that yet another program uh, that they're looking at is is being mired or is being tainted by the fact that there was somebody that knew somebody in an organization that that got a contract. And and it just it just does not help this government at all, uh, and and it also allows for the opposition, as you're seeing, to be able to sort of say, hey, wait a second, more investigations, more, you know, issues, more answers need to be, uh, more questions need to be answered. I think that's what we're going to see over the next little while. So it doesn't help them at all. Uh, Charles, do you agree with that? And and you know, one one of the things that I'm curious about is is did the government design that program or did MCAP design it? Because as I said, you get. Uh, you know, legions of small business people complaining that they're hurting and they they can't get relief through this program because you know their their landlord doesn't like it. Yeah, I should say at the outset, I, I know Rob Silver uh, quite well. I think very highly of him, as John does. Um, I think MCAP was very, very shrewd to um, acquire his services, not because of his, uh, because of who he's married to, but just because of the the intellectual heft he brings to the table as primarily as a strategist. He was one of the founding partners of uh, a rival uh, public affairs firm called Crestview Strategy, um, which, while he was a member of it, was doing very, very well for itself. Um, with regards to the degree of scrutiny that's being brought to this issue, there have been a lot of complaints in liberal circles that, you know, nothing was done wrong here. The Globe and Mail had no business making it a front page story. I don't agree with that. I think, I think a high level of scrutiny is entirely appropriate. The trick for the opposition, of course, is not to overplay its hand as it so often want to do, um, and to, uh, really stick to the facts. Um, and the facts are that Rob Silver did not lobby the government. Rob Silver was involved with one meeting with CMHC having to do with strategic communications, how to effectively get the message out. Because, Libby, you put your finger on it. Part of the problem with rent relief has been landlords, right? They have not been very cooperative. They are obviously facing um, some pretty tricky circumstances in terms of commercial real estate in um, in Canada and some of our larger urban centers, um, and they are holding a very very tough line at the moment. They are they are not inclined to offer deals to tenants who are struggling, um, not so much because of the cash flow situation that landlords face, but because of the valuation of, of the buildings that they own and operate. And Premier Ford himself has come out and said landlords had better start playing ball, or he would start 
um, intervening himself. And so it, it's an intractable problem because you're trying to provide rent relief in a way that, that runs counter to the interests of this very important segment of, of the commercial real estate um, industry, which is the landlords themselves. And, and that's one of the reasons why strategic communications is vitally important in terms of making sure that there is a, a fair degree of pickup of, of the available funding. Well, I mean, the, the, advocates on behalf of small business say, you know, instead of putting this in the hands of the landlords to trigger these subsidies, why not put it in the hands of the tenants uh, Would would so that they could use it? And, and the one thing that I've encountered, you know, both just out and about, um, you know, frequenting or, or being in touch with businesses that I, you know, that I know, so it, there's a big divide. I, yeah. I have run into quite a number of people who say my landlord is great. I've got, you know, a 30% whatever break on my rent and I'm going to make it. And other people say my, my landlord is intractable and I'm going to go under. Simple. Yes. Yeah. I, and again, at the, I'm a landlord as well for Variety Village because we have tenants and, uh, I'm not going to comment on, on what transpired between them. MCAP and Rob Silver, but I can say the program is, is really complicated for a smaller landlord. And we opted just to defer payment for our tenants to say, just don't pay us because for us to enter into that kind of agreement actually didn't make sense for us or the tenants. So it is, um, you know, we're not a commercial establishment, of course, we're a not-for-profit that had three tenants in our building, but that, the, the, we took advantage, full advantage of the wage, wage subsidy because it made sense, but the uh, rent subsidy did not for us. You know, in downtown Toronto, Libby, there's about 75 million square feet of commercial real estate, um, which comprises the, the commercial real estate market. About a million square feet are unoccupied at the moment, and it is widely anticipated that that number is going to soar post-Labor Day, yeah. um, and that we're going to see a flood of subleases. Um, and and the, the irony is, that in some cases, landlords find that it's, it's better for their bottom line to boot out a tenant than it is to um, lower the rent and thus affect the valuation of, of, of the property they own or operate. And, and, that, is, and that is just baked into um, the way things have operated for a long time, and it is a big problem. It may be that the best, the best way forward is simply to subsidize tenants so that they can pay the landlord the rent their own. But even that is terrifically, terrifically complicated. Yeah, it's 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 all complicated. I have to I have to say that even here across the street, walking down the street, suddenly I noticed there there seemed to be three new food tenants. You know, it's like where where did they come from, and what was there before, and what's going on? It I don't know. I just uh, I I think that you know it's really you know for a lot of small businesses, it is simply luck of the draw in terms of their landlords. Yeah, yeah no well, point. And I, and, I, and I think, too, that to Charles's point about commercial uh, real estate and, and how it's going to be sort of post-COVID, I know that a lot of companies are serving their members as we speak uh, after, you know, four or five months of, of being uh, sort of working from home. And, and a lot of folks are, are coming back saying, look, I've, I've got a customer working at home. I've been able to adjust family life or, or what have you. And, and a lot of them, a lot of these offices have had massive square footage of, of office are going to find themselves probably with, with a lot of open spaces now because a lot of people will want to work from, will actually decide to want to work from home. And even employees uh, who, who are looking for jobs 
will probably let their employers know that uh, that they would rather work from home than, than be in the office, especially if you're in the downtown core. And that, that's not a bad thing in terms of suppressing the virus, because obviously when, when we do make our way back into the office, into our offices, um, there will be a fair number, for, for my office, just to cite one example, I think we're going to set a maximum of six people in the office at any given yeah. time. And so, you know, having more space in your office and fewer people is probably a good thing in terms of the, you know, the, the imperative of suppressing the virus once and for all. Okay. Other major companies like TD, RBC have said nobody's coming back till calendar year 2021. Other major firms like KPMG have, or have said they're going to bring back like 5% of their workforce. So one, yeah. one out of every 20 people. And, you know, that sends a mark, that sends a big signal to the market, right? That sends the signal that, you know, working from home is the new normal. And, you know, the impact on commercial real estate will be terrible. But landlords are, cannot start lowering rents until they're absolutely forced to because once, once the fire sale, once the fire sale starts, it will last for years. Okay. Uh, we are way over time here, guys. So, uh, um, yeah, I better wrap things up and we'll be talking again soon. Thank you so much, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Bird. Thank Thanks, you. Libby. Okay. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.